I think banks are scared shitless. I think they know what's sitting on their books and they are praying like holy hell that they will still be solvent in 12 months. Hello there from Bedford, the Bitcoin capital of the world. How are you all? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by the Mighty Kraken, the best place to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got an interview with Fed Up Biz Owner, who is an anonymous Twitter account holder who has been sharing his experience in the small to medium business lending market, put out a very interesting tweet thread recently, so I thought I'd better get him on the show. But before that, I do have a message from my show sponsors. So first up today, we're going to talk about Casa, who are the very best in Bitcoin security. And if you've not been getting your Bitcoin security together, if you've been rolling around with that single hardware wallet, maybe a seed written down on a piece of paper hidden somewhere in your house, with the bull market coming, it's time to really think about your Bitcoin security. And there's no better company to work with than Casa. I'm a customer. I am a paid customer. I didn't take the free offer that they put to me. I paid. I became a customer. And I could not be happier with the service and with the protection I now have for my Bitcoin. And with Casa, it could not be easier to protect yourself from hackers, personal mistakes, in-person attacks, device failures, and so much more. And because Casa are such badasses, they have a product for every Bitcoiner out there. With Casa Gold, you get triple the security of a single hardware wallet, and it's only $10 a month. So really, you've got no excuse to get your shit together here. And with Casa Platinum, you get their three or five multi-sig, the best protection for large Bitcoin holders at a great price. And with Casa Diamond, you get the full service offering, including a customized personal security review, inheritance, and of course, their best in class security. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more by heading over to keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. That's keys.casa, K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Also, my other sponsors, sportsbet.io. And guess what? They have a huge announcement today. They have just announced that they will be the main club partner and shirt sponsor for Southampton next season in the Premier League. Not only that, they are going to be placing a Bitcoin logo on the shirt, not on the shoulder, not on the sleeve, slap bang in the middle of the Southampton shirt. Yes, every week, billions of people around the world watching Premier League football are going to be seeing a Bitcoin logo. And listen, I told you before. These people, they don't just accept Bitcoin. They actively support Bitcoin. They are always trying to push it forward. Their voice is through sport and they're going big. I love the team of sportsbet.io. I love what they're doing. They support Bitcoin and the support of my show. Amazing people. Listen, if you want to find out more, head over to sportsbet.io, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T.io. That's sportsbet.io, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T.io. Okay, so onto the show today, and I am joined by at FedUpBizOwner. You can find him on Twitter. Go and check him out. Go and check out his commentary and his threads. He's been increasingly posting things about the current state of the economy and the lending markets. And someone tagged me in one of his threads and said, Pete, you need to talk to this guy. So I reached out. I asked him to come on the show. I wanted to hear about his firsthand experience in this. And now this isn't really an area I've heard too much about with this faltering economy we have now, but it's a very interesting perspective because it's a great lens to some of the current issues within the economy. And even though the US government is actively encouraging lending to small and medium sized businesses, the fact that the banks are reluctant to lend maybe hints at a much deeper issue and the likelihood that this economic recovery is going to take a lot longer than people think. I hope you enjoyed this one. If you've got any questions, you know you can reach out to me. I pretty much reply to everyone. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Outside of that, if you want an interesting show to listen to, I highly recommend the latest show I'm working on, on Defiance, my other podcast. 
I've been telling the story of this band, The Ghost Inside, who were in a fatal crash in 2015 and the four-year recovery to get back. It's the biggest show ever on Defiance. The downloads are going through the roof. It's the most popular show on Defiance. It's got the best reviews. Honestly, I haven't met a single person who hasn't enjoyed this. If you want something interesting to listen to, this fascinating story is available at defiance.news. Outside of that, have a great week, and I will see you soon. Freddie, how are you, man? I'm good. How are you, sir? I'm very good. So before we get going, we should let people know that you aren't really called Freddie, and this is an anonymous interview, but we're going to use the name Freddie for the sake of it, just to let people know about that. Um, but listen, look, welcome to the show. So I'm going to tell you why we're doing this. Somebody tagged me in a Twitter thread the other day, and they said, Pete, you need to talk to this guy. And I went through the thread, and it interested me for two specific reasons. I'm going to tell you why. The first reason is I think it's a very good lens for what is going on economically. But secondly, I think it's also quite a good lens for a potential bunch of fuckery that's going on in the build-up to this 2020 election. Would you say both of those are fair observations? Oh, 100%. All right, cool. And just before we get started, you don't have any political suasion I, I think i saw you say you're apolitical right I, I am i am a libertarian okay which is to say i am fiscally conservative socially don't care interesting okay that's cool well then we're definitely going to have a little chat about bitcoin at the end if you're a libertarian I, i've definitely been drawn into the libertarian world uh, i wouldn't say i'm fully there um i've historically voted but i didn't vote in the last election I would say if, if my hand was forced, I'm kind of right of centre. I kind of have s parts of me socially care about, you know, the most unfortunate in society. That's perhaps me just haven't shed my uh, socialist roots from my childhood yet. But uh, that's why I say I, yeah. I, I, I'm at. Yeah, when I say I don't care, I mean I'm, in, I'm indifferent, meaning I don't believe the government should be involved, right? Yeah. Like, so... It, you know, gay marriage is one of those issues that people always refer to. And my, my response is always, if you want to marry a donkey, go ahead. Like, it just doesn't matter. Yeah. And, and I don't think the government should be involved. I do think that the government shouldn't be involved with spending money on things they don't belong spending money on. So that's really sort of where, you know, I draw the line. Um, but beyond that, you know, have at it. Well, there's some Bitcoiners who would say, yeah. Before, when there was a separation of church and state, now is the time for separation of money and state. And I think, I think you're kind of, if you weren't in that camp, you certainly feel like going through your Twitter feed certainly feels like you are there now. I, I think you could say that. Okay, right. Listen, so before we get into it, well, let's get into it. Stiff drink time, as your tweet said. Let's start by. Do you want to? Do you want to explain to people? who you are as best as you can whilst remaining anonymous and the work it is that you do. Sure. So I've been involved with lending to the franchise space for 15 years. So the franchise space in the United States is roughly between five and 10% of us GDP. It's, it's a huge part of the economy and where I am is situated Realistically, between 20 to 30 major U.S. Uh, franchise chains, many of which I would assume your listeners are familiar with. So think Domino's, Jersey Mike's, Dunkin' Donuts, 
Massage Envy, Orange Theory Fitness, which I think is in Britain now. Okay. Um, and then, and then on the other side, dealing with, you know, 15 to 20 lenders, you know, ranging the gamut from, you know, SBA for, for smaller operators all the way up through, you know, consortiums of banks for operators who need lines of credit upwards of, you know, 30, 40, 50 million. So I'm sort of at the center of a lot. And I'm one of the only people in the United States with that purview. Um, and what I mean by that is there's plenty of banks who know what's on their books and plenty of bankers who know, you know, what they're going after and what they chase, but they don't know what they don't chase and they don't know what the other banks have. So I sort of have the view of, okay, what are all the lenders doing? you know, mm-hmm. in sort of a summary. And then what are all the franchisees and franchisors doing? And so I have a really unique perspective into national lending and national, you know, franchise performance, which is a big part of small business in the US. So so you're like a middleman between these two groups of businesses. And I guess you, do, do you work on behalf of the franchisees to secure loans or do you work on behalf of the loans to find franchisees or is it a bit of both? It, it, it's a bit of both because I'm paid either by the franchisee or by the bank. My job is basically to talk to the franchisee, figure out what it is they're looking to accomplish, you know, long-term and short-term, and then marry them with a lender who's going to be able to fit that because what you don't want to do is put them with a bank and then six months later, you're going to have to refinance them out and there's consequences to those things. So my job is to basically know the lending landscape and understand who the best fit is for somebody and basically save them a lot of time and pain by not making the wrong decision. Okay. And it probably help just to explain a little bit about how the franchisee market works, the kind of economics of it, because you know, franchising is one of those things you don't you, you you suddenly hear about one day. Like you grow up going to McDonald's and you just think McDonald's is just one big company with lots of branches and uh, similar, you know, Pizza Hut, Domino's, all those kind of places. And then suddenly you hear one day there's franchises. And you're like, what is that? And it's like, well, one company will own 50 McDonald's across the UK and et cetera, et cetera. And, and so it's a new concept you hear of at one point. But just talk about the economics of how it actually works. So – what happens is a franchisor has a, an idea. So for instance, Domino's and they go to market and they sell franchises to individual entrepreneurs who want to open in an individual market. And so they pay a one-time franchise fee an ongoing royalty, and then they get to develop, you know, that market. So for instance, you know, there's one per, are, are you familiar with orange theory? fitness in the UK? No, I'm not, but please explain it. Well. Okay. The, the reason I say that is, so there, there's an owner, uh, in the United States who basically developed a certain segment here and then said, okay, I've developed here in the United States and now I want to go develop the United Kingdom. So he has the rights to the entire United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. So basically it's base, it, it's like a sub license. So the franchisor, like the creator of the concept, doesn't want to own and operate the business on a day-to-day basis. So what they basically do is say, okay, we have the infrastructure in place. You're going to buy the infrastructure. And for that, 
you're going to pay a royalty on going to us as the business owner and we'll support you with national advertising, uh, marketing support, you know, product distribution and things like that. So it, it, it has costs, it has benefits. Um, but you know, when a franchise gets to scale, like for instance, a Domino's and they can do, you know, national advertising, that's going to help your store where it's a smaller concept, you're buying in on the, the hope that that concept can become the next Domino's because realistically you're paying for something that you could do on your own at the very beginning uh, of a brand. But if you don't get in early, you don't get, you know, the best sites, the best locations, the best areas. So, so there's cost benefits both ways. And it can be quite lucrative for successful franchise owners and operators. Absolutely. Um, if you're to, to give you an example, um, and I won't name concept specifically, but Uh you know, if you get into, uh, an a location early, you know, you could run on, on a food concept, you could run 20, 25% margins, which is really high. But then as you get down the chain, you know, in terms of site selection and, and available markets, you know, those margins can shrink. They could become negative. So it, it first to the dance gets rewarded by taking the most risk is if the franchise takes off. And then there's some chains where it really doesn't matter where you go. The chain's just going to be successful regardless. But th- those are fewer and far between. So, you know, for, for a franchisee, it's very important to pick the right concept uh, in the right area at the right time. Okay. Um, and that's, you know, and, and we sort of do that you know, on, on our side, you know, I'll have clients ask me about, Hey, what do you think about this concept? You know, and I've done enough, I've been in this space long enough. I've I've seen enough financials, you know, and I can sort of advise people, you know, should you, should you do this? Should you not do this? And, you know, it's just one of the things that I'm able to do, but yeah, it's very lucrative if you're in the right spot. Right. Okay. And let's go back to January, January this year, you had a you had a good 2019. Did I see you? Was it about 500 million dollars in loans that you secured? Uh, yeah, roughly. And 2020, good start. Could potentially got even as high as 750 million loans secured based on your projections. Uh, yeah, we at the, at the time that everything froze in March, I had about. million worth of loans that were approved or in closing. So I I think my estimate was conservative, but I I don't ever really like to overestimate. I I just know the business was literally booming and, and credit was free flowing. People were expanding. It was, it was really, really good. The economy was roaring. Okay, good. Okay. So COVID hits, obviously, in terms of your business, like everyone's business, kind of everything slows down and we're all trying to figure out what's really going on probably for a month or so. And and now we're a few months in and you're starting to get a very different picture of the economic recovery based on what's happening in the lending market now. Is that fair? Uh, yeah. I mean, so I, I think it's best to reference sort of 08 and 09 because there's a lot okay. of people who, who – either owners or lenders, quite frankly, who just have never been through that recession. They're just younger Mm -hmm. (laughs) and they they never navigated it. 
And so in 0809, it was a slow drip of banks tightening up or leaving the space. In March, it was an avalanche. Everybody stopped at once. Banks left. They just closed up shop, laid people off. I mean, that's what's been happening the last few months or just layoffs, banks closing up shop. And we can get into why I think that matters and and why. But it's just a different vibe from 0809 because it was just so sudden and so widespread. It was everybody at once. Um, and, and it hasn't resumed. And I'm going to try and identify a, a, a key difference between, I think, what happened in 0809 and what's happening now. So in 0809, obviously it was an economic crash, and then everyone has to kind of figure their way out of it. You know, some businesses will be fine and some businesses will struggle, but it's, it is a recession. What we've got at the moment is what is looking like a much deeper recession, but a bigger problem is this unknown of when this COVID situation will go away. We have uh, places on lockdown, places coming out of lockdown, going back into lockdown, and it's it's a global issue. So I guess one of the things is that, especially in these franchise franchisees and franchise markets, that they, you know, they are tight margins. And if businesses are going to have to open and close and or have a limited customer base because uh, especially in you know if you're operating say a concert venue particularly difficult situation at the moment that is the i would say that is the one of the biggest differences right uh, yeah i but what's what i have found very interesting for the most part about what i'm seeing is unless you are a public gathering type concept. And what I mean by that is a gym, a school, a a cycle center, you know, things like that, you know, where the government is mandating certain percentages of of occupancy. Okay. So Mm -hmm. like think of chains with drive-thrus, they're not necessarily as affected, right? Yeah. What I am seeing mostly is that if you're not in one of those segments, the business owners are just fine. That's what's really different about this. This is a bank problem. Okay. This isn't, this isn't an owner problem because I have clients and, and you know, everybody harps on the PPP mm-hmm. as not working. And in my, it, it, and you know what? It, it had its faults, but in my sector, If you were able to stay open and you weren't forced to close, you had the government cover your payroll for two and a half months while you were still operating and and having sales. A lot of these guys are literally sitting on all of that cash. So you have business owners who are flush with cash who would like to use it to go buy people or expand, and they can't. Because they're shut off from the credit market. Okay, okay. So let's 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 dig into that. What's going on in the credit market then? So th- there there's three different um, types of lending. So I'm going to try to keep this easy for for listeners who may not be familiar. Okay. And I'm just I'm going to use school analogies. <laughs> All right, you've got you know elementary school, right, where you learn to to read and write. That's an SBA. It's for younger businesses who are just learning. 
It's more risky. You don't know how the, you know, the quote unquote student is going to turn out. Um, and, and it's for startup sort of, uh, businesses. Okay. So it's not designed for an operator with 20 units in 10 years time in business. You know, if you want to get into specifics of why we can certainly do that, but for the most part, SBA is for startups. And right now that's the majority of what is available to borrowers. Hence the problem. Then you have sort of, you know, the middle school market, which are loans from say 500,000 to 2 million. And they're designed for people who have, you know, say two to five years time in business, a couple of operating entities that are profitable and are now looking to expand and, and sort of take it to the next level, right? They've proven themselves as, as capable business owners. Mm-hmm. And, and now the debt market, you know, private debt market is open to them. And then you have sort of the college level, which are private lenders who focus on bigger operators with loans generally ranging from 2 million to say 30 million. That's the market that is most affected right now. And that's the market that quite frankly needs to get unfrozen. And then you have basically at the PhD level, which are, you know, guys who are at $50 million worth of debt and they're really into private equity and and bank consortiums and, and things like that. Those markets are really affected, but they're bigger operators. So the solutions for them will end up a little different. And it, I just, I don't know that that's really viable for, for what main street is, is dealing with because majority of the franchise owners fit into that under $30 million box in one way or the other. Okay. And, and just to repeat, you're saying for some of these companies or these franchises, the, their businesses are fine. They're profitable. They've got enough business. They just can't access credit. Right. So, so I want you to think of it this way. Are you familiar with the, the mortgage market at all? Like home yeah. mortgage market? Yeah. I mean, in that I have a mortgage. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, with what's going on in, in that market? No, no, please tell me. Um, you know, and my neighbor's a mortgage broker. I have friends who are mortgage brokers. So some of this is anecdotal and, and some of this I know just from, from reading and, and articles. So if I'm wrong, correct me. But um, from what I gather, if you have a Fannie or Freddie backed loan or, or FHA loan, no problem because the government's buying your loan, right? That's the SBA equivalent. As soon as you start hitting jumbo, it's very difficult. Uh, strict lending requirements, high net worth, high down payment, high post-closed liquidity. Those same sort of issues are present in the the business lending market. And right. can, can we just go back a step? So in the mortgage market, um, your loans are protected by the FDIC. Is that correct? I'm not I'm not a mortgage broker. Sorry. I, think, I, I think it's the FDIC because I did some looking into this with regards to – I did a thing about Steve Mnuchin and what happened with One West. And when One West would – they would insure the loans of the banks – so if if the banks ever collapsed, it would protect the economy. Um, that's what I the FDIC d- does. Is is the SBA this similar for corporate loans? Yeah. So the way the SBA functions with with business loans is so the bank will originate the loan, mm-hmm. 
uh, and the government, so they collect an origination fee and then they are paid, you know, X amount of points by the government for originating the loan. Mm-hmm. They have to service the loan. And for that, the government will buy 80% of the guarantee if the loan goes bad. So the bank services the loan. They either will keep them on their books or sell them off into a portfolio where people are investing in them. But regardless, SBA loans are backed by the government anywhere between 75 and 80%, depending on when they were originated. So so the SBA is a small business administration, right? Correct. Yeah. So that sounds, I mean, someone will correct me if I've got this wrong, but that sounds very similar, if not the same as what the FDIC does with regards to mortgages. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's the FDIC, but I know it. It is. It is Fannie and Freddie yeah. um, that are buying them, and I don't know all the mechanics. That's not my my world. But okay. yes, conceptually, it's it's going to be the same thing. But also, this I guess this makes a more buoyant market for lending because the banks that are lending know they they have a certain amount of protection. Correct, and that's but that's where the problem's coming in. Yeah, those banks are still not lending freely. Okay. And so I think it's best to, to use a few examples um, because I think that's how your, your listeners will, will understand this. Mm-hmm. Even though the government is backing the loans, you still can't get banks to lend to certain industries. They don't even want to take on a 20% risk. So I'll give you – and so you have that aspect, okay, where mm-hmm. – if you're a gym owner or you own like a trampoline park or a concert venue, things like that, it's nearly impossible to get a loan right now, even through the SBA where the government's guaranteeing 80% of the loans. Okay. okay. The second problem is there are, there are – the SBA has a standard operating procedure with a litany <laughs> – of rules that almost nobody understands, just sort of like the tax code here, that describe how you must underwrite a loan in order to get the guarantee. But the biggest problem with that manual is it doesn't cater to larger operators, right? Remember, we said at the beginning that SBA is designed for smaller operators with one or two units, startup entities. It's not designed for for somebody you know, I like in the analogy. You ever watch Elf, where yeah. where the Elf is sitting in class with all the with all the first graders? Yeah, and he's huge. That's the equivalent, right? You're trying to put somebody huge into a first grade class. It doesn't work because of the operating procedures. So, you know, the way the SBA underwrites, you know, and it's quirky, and and it quite frankly needs to be changed if they're going to be the only game in town. And it's part of the problem with the credit market is if you have 15 units and you want to refinance your loan, in order to refinance under the SBA, if you have 15 separate entities, each entity needs to cash flow its own debt. Meaning, if you have 14 stores that can service the debt and you have one unit that cannot, And you are currently with a bank that has a lien on all 15 of your locations. Well, you can't refinance through the SBA because your current bank's not going to release your lien. And the SBA can't loan you the money because every store can't service its debt. 
So that's one of the reasons why the SBA does not work. The second reason is they have lending limits. Okay, you, you can they can only go to five million. Now, it got extended to 10 million in the CARES Act, but but banks have conveniently just ignored that positive change. Um, and, you know, really the third reason why SBA sort of just doesn't work, and I'm going to use an example for this, is I have a gym owner who has no debt. And it's a chain. I won't say which one. Uh, but, but it's a high profile chain. It's desirable by banks in March. Banks would have, would have ran over, ran over themselves to get this guy as a client. Okay. So he has no debt. Typically this person would belong in the conventional market for loans. They would not be in an SBA. So three units, a million dollars in profit and no debt. That is quite literally the ideal borrower for a bank. Of course. Yeah. And so he comes to me and says, hey, you know, I'm sitting on this cash, but it's personal cash. I don't want to dig into it. I'd like a loan for $750,000 to continue to fund my business because I'm not sure, you know, what's going to happen. I just want to take advantage of what's going on and just have a buffer. I said, okay, no problem. That should be easy to do. So conventional market, again, is closed off to fitness. And so I sent him to the SBA. I get back, quote, overqualified because he has too much cash on hand. Hmm. Okay. Are you starting to see why the SBA as a solution does not work? It, it, it just it, – it, it, these are loans that frankly don't belong with the SBA. But because of how the conventional lending market has been closed off – they are stuck there, and the standard operating procedure of the SBA is so restrictive and, and so rules-based where you can't make exceptions that good borrowers can effectively be shut out of the lending market right now. There could be something else going on here. Like The timing's funny. I just went down to the shop earlier to grab a coffee, and I bumped into uh, a girl I know is a personal trainer, and her boyfriend is a spin instructor at our local gym the gym i'm a member of and i was just chatting to her and she said have you been back to the gym yet i said no i i, I said i've been even thinking of getting rid of my membership and she said um i won't say her boyfriend's name but she said he said the gym is empty at the moment there's nobody in there there's nobody going and i also know i've kind of set up a home gym right i've got myself a peloton i've got some weights and stuff here i'm going outside running i don't actually have a need for a gym here now i know what you're saying about the sba uh, here but is there also another thing going on whereby potentially risk departments are starting to see societal changes even if they're short term but perhaps certain gyms who are in debt aren't able to service their loans because they're even though they're back open they are their revenues are down they maybe are seeing you know when we had the housing crisis in 2008 and if you watch the big short there was that guy watching the defaults and he was seeing well, the defaults go up. <laughs> yeah but is there a potential here that some there's like other signals from the market coming in like large numbers of people cancelling memberships certain gyms unable to pay off their debts and then there's also this kind of recognition of these category of businesses which require public gatherings as just too high risk now i i agree with you except that 
my data from okay. from the people I'm talking to is in places where the government is not mandating restrictions, they are generally back at 70 to 80% of where they were. Right. Okay. So it, from that sense, given the margins on most fitness concepts, um, they're, they're still profitable and they can still service their debt. So I, I agree with you to an extent, but the data that I see doesn't validate that yet, except where the government is involved. Um, but that being said, your point is correct insofar as I have had, and I, and I don't want to get really stuck on, onto fitness here because it's more widespread, but, of course, but in, I have gotten excuses from lenders that basically say, yes, the numbers are fine, but we're afraid that they may have to lock down again. So it, it, the, the lack of a clear policy in terms of shutdowns and what will cause it and when they can reopen, that is the bigger issue in terms of, in terms of any business that requires you know, large public gatherings to make money. It's the uncertainty of what the government will do, not necessarily a reflection on the business or the business owner. It's the, it's the macro environment from the government, not – not on the business itself, if that makes sense. Okay, so, so what? I think you need to just be like quite quite specific. What do you think is going on here? I think that truly going on. Yeah, truly going on. I think banks are scared shitless. I think they know what's sitting on their books, and they are praying like holy hell that they will still be solvent in twelve months. Yeah, I th- um, I th- that, I th- that's. I thought that, you were going to say something similar. Because I, I, I feel like right, right now we are teetering on the edge of an economic apocalypse, which I see. And a lot of people I know, say, for example, in this Bitcoin world that I operate in, they see it. But outside of that, in like friendship circles, you know, people who just with standard jobs, I don't think they do see it. And I think there's this real lack of understanding of how the economy works, which I don't fully understand, by the way, myself. But... I think some people think, oh, we had a lockdown. Oh, we've got a government. Government can just print money and provide these furlough schemes. And, and then, you know, we're all going to go back to work. And, yeah, maybe some business is going to close. But, you know, perhaps in a few months we're going to be back to normal. But clearly we're not. No. And, and, and you know, I, I, I don't know. You know, I live in my own bubble. But I know that my bubble provides a lot of jobs and it's outward facing to the public. And basically, if you drive down a street in America and you go by a strip mall, those malls are filled by my franchise brand. Like America's one giant franchise brand. <laughs> it's when you drive down the street. So, <laughs> so you know, I know that, that what I see is truly what's going on on what the public's going to see as far as vacancies in, in strip malls and things like that. And so – the larger point that I'm making about the banks specifically is they've left the space. And on the private lending side, they're just gone. And the ones that are left, I, I mean, and I'm talking banks that I worked with through 2008 and 2009. They've just laid everybody off. And the ones who are left are either running at Skeleton Crew meaning they've laid off everybody but 
one sales rep, one credit person, and one person to close loans. They're either doing that, they're either not taking new clients and not loaning money to old clients and just sort of managing their portfolio, a combination of both of those things, or if they are taking new clients, it's the 1% of the 1%. And so what I mean by that is, and I'm going to use, I'm going to give you a, a true example because I think it's the easiest way to do this. Mm-hmm. If you own a Domino's or a Popeye's or a Wingstop franchises that are thriving right now, mm-hmm. you can still access the debt market. Okay. So um, we're just going to talk about two similarly situated people. Okay. You're a Domino's owner. You have 20 units. You have 10 years time in business. Um, you've got $5 million in EBITDA and $5 million in debt. Okay. You're one-to-one leverage. You're quite literally one of the best qualified borrowers on the planet. You can get a loan. I sub that exact same person out for a B level or C level brand. I'm talking brand. So mm-hmm. like a, a massage shop that, that is only has 300 open units nationally or a gym similarly situated you do not get access to the conventional credit market. So it, it's buyer specific and, and client specific as well as brand specific. So if unless you're part of a tier one brand and you're a tier one operator, conventional lending is dead for you. It doesn't exist. It's gone. And in terms of the SBA as a fallback, for all the reasons we already discussed, it doesn't work for somebody who is Buddy the Elf size sitting in a first grade classroom. It can't work. So the lending market is frozen in respect of growth. And what worries me about that are the repercussions. Because if you can't grow, you stagnate, which means you can't turn over the bad operators when you should be, right? I I call it Sharks need to eat. And right now the sharks can't eat because they're locked in a cage. And the only way they're going to get out is either if banks start lending or they're going to get stuck having to use private equity. And that doesn't work well for anybody long term. Well, no, I I mean, I've got very, very limited exposure back from when I used to work in advertising. We had an agency and we used to do work with uh, restaurant brands. And very small ones, actually, that, that were five or six kind of locations. And I remember two getting swallowed up by the uh, the venture capital firms that invested in them because something went wrong or other. Uh, and they got completely swallowed up because they're vultures. It, some are. Not all are. But the point is, if, if you're an entrepreneur… But it's expensive and, money, right, to borrow. Uh, right. So, so I'll, I'll give you a couple real world examples that, that happened to me in the last few days since I, since my thread went viral. (laughs) So, um, you know, private equity is designed for people who a either want to grow faster than banks will let them or B can't access the debt market and want to grow. That's really Mm -hmm. what it's there for. Good idea. Banks won't give you money. So you need to take on an investment. If you're an entrepreneur who has built a 50 unit business where you're doing $30 million in sales and you're doing just fine. Why do you want to take on a partner 
and give up your equity that you've built so hard, that you've worked so hard for just because the debt market's not open to you. Because if you don't do that, your alternative is going to be taking, you know, sort of mezzanine hard money debt at nine or 10%. Mm -hmm. and, and that's just unsustainable for somebody of that size. Because if you have to look at the difference between an interest payment on, you know, seven years at a 4% loan versus a 10% loan, it, it's enormous. So it, 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 the credit markets need to function in that mid-tier range for people who are not looking to take on a private equity partner for various reasons and, and don't want to spend 9 to 10% for money simply because banks don't you know, deem their brand valuable. And that's where we're headed, and that's the problem. What, what, are the, what do you believe are the wider implications of this economically? Do, do you, is this like a strong signal that we're heading into a very deep recession, or is it a strong signal that we're heading into some kind of – because I was talking about it to a friend earlier today. Um, he's got a, a advertising agency in London. Uh, since they've been put on lockdown, everyone's worked from home. They were about to take out a two-year lease on a shared office space. They've cancelled it they've decided they're going to be a remote company now. So th they've got a shift in what their business is doing. That's going to have quite uh, a drastic impact on major city uh, uh, residential space. Sorry, not residential, um, corporate offices. I think that's yeah, – I spoke to another guy in San Francisco who's going through a similar situation. So we've got that going on. We've got a recession. We've got – people perhaps wanting so I've spoken to a lot of people who, who've treated this lockdown as a way to rethink their life reconfigure the way they want life you 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 add that to the economic data and we, we've got quite a strong shift in society so what do you think is going on here i think um so are we just talking about like are we just talking about recessions here no i i think there I, personally i think there's something major going on under the surface, but you know, quite frankly, I'm not the one pulling the strings. I know there's people that have to be somewhere and I'm not privy to those strings. As George Carlin says, it's a big club and I ain't in it. So all I can see are what the effects of what their policies are and whether it's intentional or, you know, intentionally sabotaging the bank lending market, or they're just plain stupid and not understanding what they're doing, I can't really figure it out. Well, if they, I, so, if this was intentional, what is what could they be doing, and what would the benefit be? Oh, if this is intentional, their their plan is to nationalize the banks. It, there's no question. Okay. No question. Okay. I mean, if you eliminate the private lending market, right? If you follow this through to where it is right now, okay? Right now, you have limited banks who will only lend to limited borrowers in that medium size range between two and say 50 million. Okay. That market is basically non-existent. And then you have government backed banks who are screaming by the way, and this isn't public knowledge yet because the bill isn't out, but I'll just share it. The banks on the SBA side are screaming for the government to up their guarantee to 90% because they really don't want to take any risk at all. Well, if mm -hmm. they do that, how big of a risk is it? Or, or excuse me, how big of a leap is it to go from a 90% guarantee to 100% guarantee on any loan that you do, the government buying it all and de facto nationalization? Yeah, because, but, but, yeah okay, yeah. And But the, the problem with that, if there's no risk lending, 
we can get back to almost like crazy times with the housing market lending back in 2000, well, in the build up to 2008. You have to have, you need some kind of game theory risk when you're making, when you're lending money. Uh, I agree. But I, I, I mean, I don't understand. I, I can't figure out if I knew the end game, I would be a billionaire and I would already be retired. It, it, it's just impossible to know what it is that they're doing. I can just tell you what the repercussions are is that the debt markets are shut off to a lot of people. And the only way they're going to open up, it seems, is if the government starts guaranteeing more of the loans. Next up, I talked to Fed Up, a biz owner, more about the bank lending market. But before that, I have a message from my amazing sponsors. So first up, we're going to talk about Kraken and why they are the best place to buy Bitcoin. There's a couple of key reasons. Like firstly, nobody can touch them on security. They have the best security of any exchange in the market. They are the most trusted exchange in the market. And also with their 24-7, 365 customer support, whatever issue you have, you can reach out to them and they're going to help you. They're going to solve it for you. They also have the most comprehensive suite of tools available for buying Bitcoin at Kraken.com. It could not be easier to sign up and start buying. They also have this beautiful mobile first app that's so easy to use. If you want to buy Bitcoin on the go, you're out for a walk in the park, you sat in the pub and you're thinking, I want some more Bitcoin. Then you can whip out their mobile app and start buying. And with margin trading, futures and their OTC desk, Kraken has every single option covered for you. There is no better place to trade Bitcoin. You can find out more at Kraken.com or download the app. It's available for the iPhone and Android. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. And lastly, this week, and it's never least, it's BlockFi, who are the future of Bitcoin and financial services. They just announced they raised another massive round, backing for what is an amazing business that continues year after year to grow, continues year after year to provide amazing lending and borrowing services within the Bitcoin world. Now with BlockFi, you can open up an interest account. I am a customer. I've been earning interest for nearly a year now with BlockFi, and my interest is close to a Bitcoin, which is pretty, pretty fucking cool, if we're honest. Also, you can use your Bitcoin as collateral and take out a USD loan, and you can also fund your BlockFi account directly from your Bitcoin wallet. And with the BlockFi mobile app, you can now access all their services on the go. With so much more coming this year, it's going to be a massive, massive year for BlockFi. If you are interested in finding out more, I do recommend you do your own research. Then head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Let's talk about the other thing that's going on, which I'm very suspicious about, but I think it's kind of obvious, right? So Donald Trump, most of his speeches and his interviews, he talks about having the greatest economy ever. And I don't know what his measures are, but whatever. He said he had the greatest economy ever. Certainly, the economy was doing well on certain measures, perhaps not on others, but let's give him the benefit of the doubt. We have, and I would say, by the way, you take us back to January 19, 2020 election was a landslide Trump win, if you ask me. Now we have COVID, which comes with a whole bunch of other issues and problems that he's had to navigate. And we have economic output is down. Uh, unemployment is up, yet we have the stock market at record levels. Now, we know it's fairly simple to pump the stock market by uh, by where you put the stimulus money. You could be writing checks to people who are out of work and who need to eat, which has happened, but you can also write massive checks to private companies who are able to buy back stock, able to uh, manipulate the performance of their business 
which those things have, I, I, I'm under the impression these are the things that have led to the stock market being at record levels. I believe this manipulation is entirely on purpose because this is a solid argument going into the 2020 election. What about you? Um, I, yeah, I mean, the market's a joke. Yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't reflect reality. I'm, I'm not a stock market guy. I mean, I'm invested personally. Myself, I am a hundred percent in gold and gold miners because I'm betting against the, the the Ponzi scheme that this is. It's all going to come crashing down. It's it's unsustainable, and either we're going full Zimbabwe, and our stock market's going to a hundred thousand on the Dow because the dollar will be worth zero, or it's coming down. And either way, I want on gold. <laughs> so that's where I'm invested because I'm not buying Apple at. Well, I don't know what is it today. Four hundred dollars a share, four fifty. I, I have no clue. I'm. I would. You know. I'm not going to buy Tesla <laughs> at at their valuations. I mean, it's just it's just silly to me. So you know, myself, I'm just I'm in gold. I I have a, a large physical supply. I, I don't know how they're going to keep this thing going other than to keep printing money. So that's why I'm positioned where I am. But I, I mean, you know, they're going to do whatever they do. But, you know, I'm not a financial advisor. I'm just doing whatever I can as sort of an average person to to protect myself from what I see coming. That I think that's a very fair way of looking at it. It's like the lens that you've seen in the lending market that you operate. But interesting. Let's talk about the gold thing. I mean, actually, if I could take this back, I mean, and truthfully, I think I know too much because in full disclosure, I tried to short this market for about three months and got my ass kicked. Jesus. <laughs> I got destroyed for for three straight months because I'm like, this is unsustainable. I know what's going on in the lending market in the real world. How is the stock market doing what it's doing? And then I just came to the conclusion that they don't care. And this has become a matter of basically national security to keep the stock market where it is and to keep it going up. So I've had to join the party. It goes against everything yeah. that I can believe, but it just it what am I gonna do? I can't fight the system forever and go broke just because I know what's really going on. I have to, you know, sort of just accept it for what it is and, and try to navigate it. There will be a time when it is good to short the market. I, I don't know when that is either. I don't, I don't trade the stock market anymore. I haven't done it for years. I have got my ass kicked before with things that don't make sense at all to me. But I tell you, one thing does make sense to me is gold. So let's talk about that. I think this is an interesting, uh, Interesting topic to get into because I am going to make you talk about Bitcoin a little bit, just a little bit. <laughs> <That's> fine. <laughs> All right, because I think you and I are. I had a. Do you know who Peter Schiff is? I love Peter. Yeah. So I debated him recently. Well, I say debated him. He talked over me for about two hours, an hour and a half. Uh, I tr- <laughs> yeah, I try. I try to get a few points in, but the point, the main point is, I think we are on the same side. And I think the reason you own Bitcoin, uh, sorry, you own gold is the exact same reason I own Bitcoin. I think we're on exactly the same side. I, I, I would, think I would agree. I, there's just no way it's the same. It's it, it's always the same rationale. And I actually read something today where it said, you know, and I'm a millennial. Yeah. Um, and it said that millennials are flocking to Bitcoin and older generations are flocking to gold. It's the exact same reason. People aren't stupid. Um. I actually want both. I haven't got gold yet. My intention is to get some. I want. I, I actually want both, and I think it's a it's a sensible to, to to dig a hole in the garden, put some cash in there in case there's a run on the banks, and have a bit of gold in there. Uh, and I definitely want to buy some gold. I haven't got there yet, but I am. 
I am pretty balls deep in Bitcoin right now, I'll be honest. Um, but I think we're there for the same reason. But I want to ask, like, how much have you looked at Bitcoin? How much do you know? Uh, I know enough. Um, I, so my background's in law also. Okay. Um, and and so my issues with Bitcoin are, are not that it's Bitcoin. And if you can refute these, I would become a Bitcoin supporter. But I've never had anybody effectively satisfy my concerns on my issues. And I have I a am, few. I'm in for the challenge. Let's go for it. All right. So, so my, my biggest <laughs> issue with Bitcoin is I don't believe that the next war is going to be fought with weapons. Mm-hmm. I believe it's going to be fought cyber and through computers. And if there's no power and no computer network, your Bitcoins are useless. That's my biggest concern with Bitcoin is it's not tangible, it's not physical, and if the power's off or you're, they're jamming signals, you can't effectively access your money. That okay. is my number one concern, and I've never had anybody be able to refute it other than it would be Mad Max and your gold won't matter either. That's great, but at least I know that someone will take it if they have something I want. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that that is a, that is a, a point. I don't know if it's a fair point, but definitely it's certainly a point – Okay, let's deal with that in a couple of ways. Uh, firstly, I'm not sure if that war's coming. If I'm not sure on the odds of that war coming. And if it does come, I'm not sure that I'm going to be stuck. I think the chances of me being stuck in the UK with no power or access to power, I think is very, very so low that I think the the investment in Bitcoin is still worth it. But I still want to hold gold. But I, I understand the point you're making. Actually, even if there is no power, you will still have generators. You still have mesh networks. So there will still be the ability to use Bitcoin. It will be, I'm sure, difficult. But that's a very tough argument to go up against. But I think it's a very unlikely scenario. So that that's my first issue. Yeah. My second issue is, and, and this one you could probably... Well, I, I, I would say with that one, even if you believe it, I I would say so. For example, the reason I want to hold a bit of gold, and my gold would be kind of probably ten percent of my Bitcoin holdings, right? But the reason I want that bit of gold is for that scenario whereby I, I need something in my hand just in case. And it's not that I can't access the internet, but maybe I have to do some kind of trade with somebody who doesn't want Bitcoin or doesn't know anything about it, but that would take gold. So I've got a similar scenario and a similar reason for holding gold and the, my proportion is so low because I think it's such an unlikely scenario. Yeah, I, well, I don't think it's unlikely and I have one reason for that. Okay. There is no chance that anybody is going to win a military war with the United States. And the only way you will ever beat the United States in a war, just because of geographical reasons, um, the way our borders are just, just the way we're situated. There is no way to beat the United States without defeating it from within. And the only way you're ever going to do that is by turning the lights off. So Mm. for me, I don't think it's as far-fetched as you might because nobody stands a chance going up against us, against us in an actual hot war where bombs are being dropped. Well, I've always thought we're at that point now where there's, it doesn't make sense for any superpower to go to war. It's, it's, It's utter destruction. Yeah. It's utter destruction. So, um, but I also don't think there's any benefit to attacking each other's infrastructures and turn the lights off. I, 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 it's a different kind of utter destruction, but I don't, I don't see that coming. But, you know, I accept your point. 
um, it, it, so, and then my second reason um, that I that I just don't really like Bitcoin is more just logical, and and I'd love to hear a refutation on it. Quite frankly, right, let's go with this one. Um, is there is zero point zero chance in my mind where the government, if they decide to go with a crypto based system, is going to allow allow an outside the system challenger, just like they don't allow random people to print their own money. To me, Bitcoin would fall right and all cryptos would fall right into that category of direct competitor with government issued currency and they would be outlawed immediately. Okay. So this is this is this is I, this is more of an interesting one to get into. And again, there's a couple of points here. The government cannot create a competitor to Bitcoin. They can create a cryptocurrency in that is a currency that can be exist online. Uh, it can exist on a blockchain. It can be, you know, you can use cryptographic proofs. And I'm certainly out my depth in some, like certain technical explanations. But what they cannot do is they cannot create something like Bitcoin, and they have no need to. Why would they? The, the, let's let's go with the the key fundamental feature of Bitcoin, which they will never do. Bitcoin has a, a limited supply of 21 million. There is no scenario where a government will create a fixed supply, say, of a digital dollar or a digital currency, because that means they lose the money printer. So that that, that scenario will never happen. Secondly, the, the thing about Bitcoin is it has this trust network because it's decentralized. It isn't owned by anyone. It can't be controlled by anyone. So because of that, people have a people trust it a little bit, but kind of well, a lot I agree, more. With, I agree with everything well, you and no, and the final point, the great thing about Bitcoin is we've got we've got an example is that you can't switch it off. So China banned Bitcoin; they can't stop people using it. If if the the only thing that would happen is if they banned it, there would be a temporary hit on the price, which happened when China banned Bitcoin. But when China banned Bitcoin, it was about like I don't know three thousand dollars, five thousand dollars. We're back at like eleven and a half thousand. We've been to twenty thousand. You cannot switch off Bitcoin. Because it's decentralized. So the US can ban it, but they can't stop people using it. I can carry the private keys in my head. I can transfer Bitcoin to you without anyone knowing. I agree. I agree with you. Um, it, but here's here's where I, I will push back. And mm -hmm. I all of those points are valid. There's I, I agree with all of them. I just don't think they'll overcome the government power that would happen. And here's why here's why I say that. What does government do? I mean, realistically, what what is their number one function? Oh, I guess that depends on who you ask. I think the number one role of government is to stay in power. Right. How do they How do they stay in power? By uh, manipulating the people to vote for them. Well, that well, that's one. But two of their power taxes. Um, yeah, yeah. It's taxes. There's no government on the planet that is going to allow a business. It doesn't matter if you and I barter through Bitcoin. They don't care about that. What they'll care about is, is the McDonald's franchisee accepting Bitcoin, not reporting that income and circumventing my tax system. And for that reason, they're going to ban all businesses from accepting Bitcoin. And if they do that, which they will, because they won't be able to collect taxes on the sales otherwise, 
We're talking sales tax at the, at the point of purchase. We're talking income tax on the profits. We're talking all of it. And because government will never, ever forego the ability to collect the maximum amount of taxes possible, they will ban all businesses from accepting Bitcoin. And at that point, it is effectively dead as a unit of measure of currency. Let's call, let's call that a scenario. Let me give you an alternative scenario, which maybe is worth having some small exposure to Bitcoin. Uh, Bitcoin is an asset. It is essentially a digital gold, uh, scarce, scarce supply. What, what if we have a scenario whereby a government or your government has recognized the benefits of having a digital version of gold? The government holds gold. What if the reason they don't ban it is because they hold it themselves? What if the fact that they've got in so early and they've got a decent size holding that it's the the it doesn't make sense for them to hold it because they hold so much value in it? What if holding a high position in Bitcoin is beneficial to the government on a geopolitical level? If if that was yeah. true, you would be I would I would agree with you. But I don't. I haven't seen. Personally, I mean, I don't know enough about Bitcoin, so I'd yeah. be purely speculating with this next statement. But I haven't seen that governments worldwide have stores of Bitcoin. So it's starting. So we know that again. These are the nefarious states because it helps them to get around sanctions. But we know North Korea, Venezuela, and Iran have all used Bitcoin. We know that. What we don't know if there are. It doesn't make sense for a government to admit there stacking bitcoin because that's a signal to the market which would create a run on the bitcoin essentially the price would skyrocket but it wouldn't be beneficial but bitcoin, like bitcoin would go to infinity if that was the case well it would certainly shoot up and i would be able to buy a lamborghini um but <laughs> but what, what i'm saying is like i accept all your potential scenarios they, they are potential scenarios but i still think bitcoin survives these you the the, the one thing that i really love is that you can ban the the trade of bitcoin but you can't stop it you can legislate against it but you can't prevent it oh i agree i i completely agree with you I, there's like i said there's no sin you're not wrong about any of your points none my issue just comes in terms of will it be worth what you think it might be worth right if because you have to think of it from a business owner's perspective if they make accepting Bitcoin illegal and there are criminal penalties to it. No business is going to take it. And that means you end up on sort of the eBay system, which, by the way, it will still have value. There, there's no scenario. There is no scenario in my view, just like in, with gold, where Bitcoin will have no value. It, that. <laughs> I know Peter Schiff, that's his point. Bitcoin's going to zero. That, that's yeah. stupid and nonsensical. It will have value because there will be plenty of people who, you know, if you're not in the, say the United States bans it, right? But France doesn't. There will be plenty of businesses in France who will gladly take Bitcoin. So the, the upside risk for you is that Bitcoin becomes so prevalent that businesses revolt against those laws en masse. That's a giant upside for you. I just don't know if governments crack down and truly crack down worldwide. And it would be coordinated, by the way. It wouldn't just be one country. It would be all of them mm -hmm. at once. Um, I don't know that business owners en masse would push back.
it would be a battle, quite frankly. And and that's why I'm not comfortable with Bitcoin because I'm not sure they'll win a battle with with all of the nation states against them. Well, this is where I think it comes. This is where it comes to hedging. Um, so, for example, I don't. I I'm I'm very confident with Bitcoin, which is why I hold the majority of my wealth in it. And um, but I still want a bit of gold just in case because I have this kind of nagging thing in the back of my mind. I think for gold bugs, you can flip that the other the other way. And if you understand what Bitcoin is, and it's like a digital gold, and you, know, you understand the risks and you have those fears, but at the same time, you know the upside. Should you be wrong, isn't the isn't it worth having a small amount of exposure for that potential huge upside? Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not. I'm just. I'm not convinced personally. I'm just not convinced of digital currencies. And what and, and what I don't like about Bitcoin the most. Forget yeah. my concerns on the geopolitical yeah. side. And, and all of that. I mean, those are those are terrorists, and they are what they are. Hmm. My biggest concern with Bitcoin is it's not stable. Well, wow. uh, it can go from twelve thousand to what did it do the other day? I think it, I saw it went from twelve thousand to like ten thousand. Ten, ten, ten and a half. Yeah, yeah. Five minutes. I, I, I'm not comfortable <laughs> with with something that can do that. It just that doesn't work for me personally. There are those who can tolerate it because. They're just in it for the long haul, whether it goes to a thousand dollars or a hundred thousand. They're just it is what it is. You have a belief. I am not comfortable investing in that scenario. You you know why it does that though, right? Yeah, I don't actually. I mean, it's gone from you know a value of zero to you know two hundred billion dollars in ten years, and I think for most Bitcoiners, the the kind of end goal here is is taking, yeah, it's taking over gold. It's being being a more dominant form of money or dominant asset than gold. You can't go from zero to ten trillion without a bit of volatility. That's true. But 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 over time, the you know over time, if you actually go and measure it, over time, the volatility it is starting. It shows the indications of leveling out. The, the volatility now. It's not like it was five years ago, and certainly not like it was ten years ago. Because, yeah, as Bitcoin grows, there's more liquidity in the market. We, you know, there's more ways to trade it. There's more way. So the kind of the it's becoming less volatile. But at the same time, like gold has been volatile to the upside over these last few months. Well, the the, the truth is, gold and, and silver, particularly, they've been suppressed for years, mm. years. So I don't even think they're not even back to fair value from from where they were. I believe, I, I, and I'm not a money expert, but I, I could swear I saw something the other day where to get to fair value from like 1987, it still needs to get to inflation adjusted. Like 2,500 puts it in inflation adjusted. Wow. So we're not we're we're still under where gold should be. So we haven't even got to where it's going <laughs> because we're not well, even back. Yeah. I mean, isn't Schiff calling for like $15,000 an ounce gold or something? Uh, I, don't, I mean, if we're going to print unlimited money, gold, there's no limit to where gold can go. Yeah, true. Well, I think we're, I, I think we're on the same side. You know, um, you're, you're, uh, you're still playing CDs and I'm listening to MP3s. Yeah, <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 truly, it's possible. I mean – 
I just I am more afraid of what governments would do the same way that that they confiscated gold in the 30s, which, by the way, I'm got a very big risk as far as I'm concerned for what I'm holding. Yeah. Um, and I am afraid they would do the same thing the best way that they could to Bitcoin yeah. because thing government will not tolerate is a competitor. It just it just won't tolerate it. And whether that competitor is gold or Bitcoin or both, they may come after both. Mm-hmm. No, no, it's true. And do you know what? The rebel inside me is a as an someone listens to rock and roll music and is covered in tattoos. The other thing I like about Bitcoin is it's kind of a fuck you to the government. <laughs> I guess <laughs> Well, listen, look, Freddie, this is, this has been great. It's been super useful. I appreciate you coming on and, and talking about this to me. I think a lot of people are going to be interested to to hear what you say because I think I think this lens that you have into what's going on in the economy is, is very important right now. In some ways, it's super scary. So, look, usually this is the point I'll say, look, tell people where to follow you and how to get in touch. I mean, you could let people know your Twitter handle anyway. Yeah, it's at HRGP forever. Um, and then my, my tagline is fed up business owner. Um, it's a, it's a live stream of my sarcasm and rants at, at how screwed up this system is at the moment. Yeah, man, we're all seeing it. Look, I appreciate you coming on though, Freddie. It's good to talk to you and listen, let's stay in touch. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm following you now and I'm, I'm going to be looking out for your, uh, your rants and seeing what else you got to say. Um, but yeah, keep doing what you're doing and I hope your account keeps blowing up. I think you're putting some interesting stuff out there. I appreciate it. Thank you for your time. Okay. So what did you make of that one? I thought this was a really interesting interview and it really highlighted the threat of these rolling and localized lockdowns on specific types of business and how this will continue as governments try and manage the pandemic. It was also a bit of a reminder that this could be a long, long economic crisis and that we could be in for a lot more pain before we start to see it recover. I mean, it just makes me more bullish on Bitcoin, but you know what? It's a bit sad. Like, obviously, I want to be bullish on Bitcoin, but I don't want to be, I don't want it to happen in a situation where other people are suffering. And, you know, if you are suffering out there with your business, you know, I feel for you. I su- if I can support you, let me know. Um, but, it does make me more bullish on Bitcoin. It makes me realize that we do need the hedge against this economic fuckery. And with the stock market looking more and more irrational, I'm just happy I'm holding Bitcoin. So anyway, look, I hope you enjoyed this one. If you've got any questions, you can reach out to me. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. I do recommend you follow at FedUpBizOwner on Twitter. He has been posting a lot of interesting stuff. Outside of that, if you do want to check out my other show, it's at defiance.news. I'm making this interesting story at the moment about this band, The Ghost Inside. You might want to check that out. Yeah, and other than that, have a great week and I will see you all soon.